The scripture today comes from 2 Corinthians it's, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 18. And this is what it says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also, also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of the faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus from who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, moment, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an internal weight of glory beyond comparison, as we look not, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's uh, go to today's passage. This is, uh, for those of you who haven't maybe been with us, um, this is a part three of, of, a, of a series that we're in that it's called Treasures, Treasure in Clay. And it's from this, it's a, it, it is a complex but um, incredibly profound passage about what it means to have Jesus in your life. And, um, and what I want to do today is talk about, especially, this, it's, it's this verse. Uh, there's a lot of these incredible verses kind of like lodged into this passage. Um, this is the verse that I want to, I want to talk about today. Uh, verse, this is verse 14. Knowing, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. It is for your sake. So Paul is speaking to this church. It's a really messed up church. This church, this Corinthian church, a lot of chaotic things are happening in this church and a lot of incredibly broken people, um, and including... Inclu including people like our sister, who is literally fighting the devil. And this is what he says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is the portion I really want to talk about today. It's super relevant to Easter. Right? So in this message, I've entitled Eternal Living Over Dying, Part 1, Raised with the Lord Jesus. Raised with the Lord Jesus. Part two, 
eternal living is sacrificial loving. That's actually what eternal living is. Eternal living is sacrificial loving. In part three, I'm going to close. I'm going to give you a story which I think really illustrates this thing. Life over dying all for your sake or for other people's sake. I mean, we're a new church. We're a, a new witness in this city. And one of the things that we want to proclaim is that you, if you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will do, he will, his dying will defeat your dying. His life will be eternal life in you. But it isn't just for you. It is for your sake. It is for other people's sake. And that's what he's going to do in you. He's going to do something incredible in you, which will do, then spill out for other people's sake. Um, part one, uh, raised with the Lord Jesus. So this is what it says in verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, that's Easter, <laughs> will raise us also with Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. I, I want to just start by talking about this. Um, a lot of people know that Easter is, is the celebration by Christians, that there's this guy named Jesus. We believe that he isn't just another moral teacher, but he is the son of God. He is um, the second person of the, the Holy Trinity. And, we, and in our doctrine, there's only one God, this mysterious thing of three persons, but one God. And there isn't lots of different gods. There's only one. And he came and he actually became a man. And then he came specifically to live the life we should have lived and then died the death we deserve to die. And then in his dying, in his dying, he could swallow up all our deaths if you would be united to him. That's, that's the promise. And, and, it, is, and it is a... It is believed by Christians that this person who was crucified 2,000 years ago, I mean, he, he didn't just kind of die. It wasn't a myth. He, he absolutely died. It was a historical fact. Uh, the Romans were there. The Jews were there. There's all kinds of, of great um, incentive for people to falsify this thing. But um, there's, there's no way this is could have possibly been falsified. And then this incredible claim came about. That he was risen. That the very same Jesus crucified is now alive and risen. But he didn't just, when he was risen, he didn't just come to, back to a life kind of like as you and I have this kind of body. He was risen to a life that could not die. And then these people who when he was being nailed and when he was on trial, all his closest friends and followers, they all fled and they were cowards and they betrayed him. All of a sudden, they went out into the world with more courage and more life and more generosity and more mercy and grace and joy than anybody could have possibly ever thought possible. And then, one by one, every single one of them, except for one, they were all murdered. <laughs> they were all killed. And then they would say, if you deny that Jesus, if you just deny this Jesus person, we won't kill you. You know what they all did? Before... When he was being crucified, they were all cowards. But after he was risen, or at least they say he was risen, they all said, no way, kill me. <laughs> and all of these followers, except for one of his disciples, they all died. They all died. They were all murdered. <laughs> and none of them. And then 
none of them denied after that. And then something extraordinary happened. Um, people who are not supposed to believe <laughs> that a man, I mean, Jews are the last people on the earth that could believe that a man can actually be God. I mean, that's like, that's completely, you could be, you could be stoned for making that claim. In fact, they wanted to stone Jesus. Jews are the last people to believe. These people went out and said, this person that we know, he is the God. And through his death and resurrection, you can have salvation. And then it went out to the nations, and it's still happening. It's still happening. That's what this day is about. Now, here's the other thing that a lot of people, it's an extraordinary event that happened 2,000 years ago. But one of the things I also want to proclaim to you is what this passage teaches you, which is that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. So that Easter is not simply something that happened 2,000 years ago to the man who is God. To all those who give their lives and surrender their lives to Jesus so that his blood will wash you of your sin and his death will swallow up your death and dying and then his life will become your life. <laughs> That's the promise. The promise is that you believe in Jesus, you're united, to, you're united to Jesus so that you are raised with Jesus. And as, our, and, and, and as Pastor Young said, that is not a life that happens after you die. <laughs> That is a promise given to you that you can begin to have eternal living, resurrection quality life now. That is the promise. <laughs> that is the promise. This is the central promise of Christianity. So it isn't just something like, okay, today I hope uh, everything will go right for me and I will always be healthy and we'll make money and my kids will, everything will great, be great for them. And then, and then hopefully we can just avoid all suffering and then I'll die, and then I'll get to be with Jesus. No. Actually, the promise is somehow today, today, as you are united to Jesus, mysterious thing that in faith you're united to him, his death is united to all your dying and swallows up all your dying. His life now can come into you and have a new kind of life today. That's what we're talking about. Now, in this series... Two weeks ago, in part one, we started with a message that I called glorious vulnerability. Because this passage says this, that once you know Jesus, you have the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But the outside of us, when you meet a person who's a Christian, they don't seem all that special. They look the same. And it says here in this passage, for we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And what I talked about in this message is, you know, what it is to have Jesus doesn't mean everything will work out great for your life. <laughs> because actually, the glory is something stranger. <laughs> that people, people who are clay, really common, they're vulnerable, they're afflicted. This is the way the passage puts it. We are afflicted, but we are not crushed. Right? We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Because this is because we have Christ. So that we can have all the afflictions. But inside, inside, there's a treasure. 
The treasure is resurrection life. The treasure is being with a person who has defeated death on our behalf, who's died the death we deserve to die, but now going to give us a life we can never have earned. That's, that was part one. But that if we're going to do this, it's not some cheap religion where oh, everything's going to be all great, but that we can walk the life that everybody else can also feel, but in our affliction that they also, we share the same affliction that they do. We share the same hurts that they do. We share the same sins that they do. We share the same attacks and lies from the devil that they have. But in this, no. In this clay, we can be vulnerable, yet in the vulnerable, there's glory. (laughs) That's what we were talking about two weeks ago. That's the kind of church I would like us to be. And last week, I, I gave you an even, kind of even more insane message, which, is, um, which, was entitled, um, which was entitled, Affliction to Divine Love. And in this passage, it says that, <laughs> let me read it, in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life is in you. Here we, here's, what, here's what it means. So Jesus came specifically for affliction. He specifically came not to become rich. He didn't come for a great SAT score. He didn't meet, come to meet some great babe and have a perfect marriage. He didn't come to live in, in, in the super suburbs and then have a million dollar house. Okay, that, that's not a great house in, in, in San Jose. A uh, $3 million house. <laughs> okay, and in San Jose, a million dollar house is not going to get you much. Okay, so um, he didn't come for these things. He came to be afflicted, to share affliction. He came to share in our affliction. And then he came so that death would be at work in him, but his death would then go out for life in us. That's what he came for. And you know what that movement is? That movement is love. That's what it is. That's what it is. I will come so that I will share in your affliction, in your dying, and then I'll die. But my dying will swallow up all your dying, and then I can give you life. It's a terrible trade. It's a terrible trade. I will take on dying, and I'll give you living. Your dying will come into me. My living will come to you. You know what the Bible calls this? Love. God's love. You know what the calling of all those people who believe in Jesus is? This same calling. What I said to you last week, Revive Church, if you believe in Jesus is it's not when God will allow you to be afflicted. In fact, God will deliberately choose for you to be afflicted so that your affliction could share in the affliction of somebody else and you could love them in a special and important way which they need. Because, you know, um, we're all like this. You know, our, our sister, our, our sister um, Michelle gave this incredibly bold an incredibly brave and honest testimony. She has this affliction, depression, and self-hatred. And 
And then she also has been afflicted by hearing the lies of the devil. It's like a, it seems like a normal thing that she has to wrestle with and fight it back with the gospel, with Jesus. But you know what? Some of you may have depression and some of you may have self-hatred and some of you may have those lies going on too. But you know what? It takes someone who knows that to offer that love to someone else. And they're like, you too. You too. Thank you, Michelle, for loving people afflicted that way. Um, let's go to part two. Part two. Eternal living is sacrificial loving. I'm going to give you a quote from one of my favorite pastors, uh, Tim Keller. Okay, you know, I love quoting Tim Keller, all right, uh, because he's, he, <laughs> he just, he, he, t- he tells, takes you biblical truth and just, just like packages it so great. But one of the things that he said is all real love is substitutionary sacrifice. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. Um, you know the songs that we listen to on, on the, well, you, don't listen, you probably don't listen to it on radio. On your Spotify, I don't listen to radio. I listen to Spotify, okay? <laughs> the songs we listen to on Spotify, and it goes, oh, it's love. It's all about love, right? But in our time, love is always a feeling. It's a feel-good feeling. <laughs> but real love is not a feeling. <laughs> real love is an action that says, I choose substitutionary sacrifice so you get something good. That's real love. That's real love. And one of the things I want to say to you from this passage is this. Love himself is a person. Love himself came to give life. And you know what life is? It's love. (laughs) Life is love. Not feeling the dumb thing that you hear on the radio or on Spotify, it's super shallow. It's usually very, very selfish. Oh, I love you, baby. I can't live without you. It's, it's, it's usually about like, you know, you're like good looking and I wish I can kind of like have you. And it's really about me. There's nothing sacrificial that you give to the other person. It's just about using the other person so I can feel good. That's kind of what our today secular version or like godless vision of love today that's what we call love. It's like the devil's definition of love. It really is. Real love is you meet a person, they have weakness. They have lack. They have darkness. And then when you meet them, if you really get to know them, you have to be a part of that darkness. You have to be with their weakness. This is why marriage is so hard. <laughs> you meet the person. They're so good looking at the beginning. That, 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 that cute and clever piece of you know, personality that is so different from you. A year into the marriage, it's so annoying. <laughs> it was so intriguing because it's different from you at the beginning. But a year into the marriage, you're like, why can't you be more like me? <laughs> That's what it's like. Because that thing... At least for, in your perspective, maybe it isn't lack, but at least in your perspective, it is lack. If, they re- if you really get to know them, then you will find out the thing that really is. It's a loss. Inside them, the thing they are, where they are dying. And if you're going to stay with them, if you're going to stay their friend, we're not just talking about marriage here. If you're going to be a real friend, you're going to find out the dying thing that's in the other person. 
If they never share you the dying thing that's inside them, let me tell you something, they're not your friend. <laughs> and you're not their friend. If you can only hang out and you only talk about, ha, 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 easy things, let's have a beer, ha, 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 let's talk about sports. This is how guys do it, <laughs> right? And then we go home, and they never tell you the dying thing that's happening inside of them. They're not your friend, and you're not their friend, and you don't really love them. But if you have a real friend, they will share you, or at least they're trying to be your friend, or they want you to be their friend. They will tell you the thing, the real lack, the real darkness, the real hurt, the real affliction. And then when you know about it, now you have to be a part of it. And when you're a part of it, now the dying will come into you. And you're going to say, I will take some of your dying, and then I will substitute some of my living for you. Some of my compassion, some of my, my generosity, some of my understanding. And then they'll live. That's love. You know what the cross is? This is at the center of Christianity. Everybody in Christianity is about rules. It's not about rules. <laughs> oh, it's about rules. Do this, don't do this. Go do this, you'll be a better person. And then maybe God will like you at the end. That's, that's not Christianity. I think that's like Judaism teaches something like that. Islam teaches something like that. Per virtually every other religion teaches something like that, including, by the way, secular religion. <laughs> secular religion says if you do this, 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 then you'll be a tolerant and good person, and then we'll like you. We'll accept you. I don't know about the God part, but Alex will accept you. Christianity teaches something strange. Christianity, at the center of Christianity, is not rules because it, the rules are there to show us that we already screwed them all up. And we fail them. And you will fail them even though you don't want to fail them. That's the crazy part. You're, you're thinking, I'm, I'm not going to do it. By discipline, I won't fail this rule. And then you fail the rule. <laughs> and the ones who fail the rule and the center of the story, God, who is utterly holy and love himself, Say, I will come to love you. <laughs> Here's how I'll love you. Substitutionary sacrifice. <laughs> That's the cross. That's the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection, it is love. In the center of Christianity is this. Love will conquer our death. Love will conquer our hate of, even of God. That's what it's about. <laughs> Love in the person of the Son of God, Jesus. You realize he, uh, it doesn't seem like a great life. Born, first bed he ever had was a manger. You understand what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. Worst bed ever. <laughs> and then, dirt poor parents, born in the wrong portion of the country. He's got the accent that everybody looks down upon. That's the, that's the kind of person that said, this is the life I will choose. Affliction. Substitutionary sacrifice. Real love. For you. All for your sake. Brothers and sisters, if you have accepted Jesus in your life, in our city, we think that we can, if you're going to get the grades, and then you're good looking enough, and then you, hopefully you'll get true love. <laughs> it's like an idolatry. 
Our sister talked about this idolatry today, right? Let me tell you something. You're going to marry a normal person. <laughs> You're going to marry a normal person. If they're look good, good looking at the beginning, just wait. They won't be so good looking. Okay, later, okay? <laughs> All right. And if they're not good looking at the beginning, if you love them, they will begin to be good looking. But we think, oh, I'm going to marry a good, good looking person. I'm going to get the great SAT. I'm going to get the great job at, well, can you name the company? And then I will live in the $3 million house. And then we'll just go from victory to victory, and everything will just be great, victory to victory to victory. This is complete nonsense. Okay, maybe 0.1% of, of a person gets to live this life. But will they have love? They probably won't. And then they'll die. You know why? Because if you don't have love, you don't have eternal life. Because eternal life is love. I want to close with this. If you're going to live in Christ, I want you to think differently about your afflictions. This idea that you're going to live the perfect life, victory to victory to victory, can you just, just shoot that out of your mind? And every day when it comes back tomorrow, then just shoot it out again. It's repentance, actually. <laughs> you just got to squash that lie like a bug because it's from the devil. It's like from our city. The city is like screaming this lie at us because they have the, you know, the megaphone of the devil. But every time that thing keeps coming to your mind, I, I want this, I want this, I want this. And squash it like a bug. You know what you should want? I want real love. <laughs> I want real loving. I want eternal life. The kind of life that can defeat death. Because love defeats death. Real love defeats death. And when you give it away to other people, when you choose, when you choose, I have an affliction. You have an affliction. Let me let... Let me share my affliction with you because we're clay. And then, but I have Christ. So sometimes it'll be hard when your dying comes into me. But you know what? I have the death of Christ in me. The death of Christ will defeat your dying and my dying. And then we have the life of Christ. His love. I want to close by um, telling you, um, just, just a, I don't know, I thought about this all week long. And uh, I'll tell you a a couple of you, if you've been here for me a number of you, you might have heard this testimony because I just love this story. <laughs> it's not mine. It's not. Um, he's not famous except in certain circles, okay? His name is uh, John Baker. Anybody know who John Baker is? So you don't know who he is. <laughs> John Baker started a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. <laughs> and here's a story. I, I found his testimony and I'll, I'll only just go through it. It's, it's kind of lengthy, but I'm going to try, try to um, go through a piece of it. John Baker said this. So, I was raised in a Christian home in the small Midwestern town of Collinsville, Illinois, with a population of 10,000. I had a normal childhood, whatever that is. My parents were members of a small Baptist church, and I asked Christ into my heart at age 13. In high school, I was class president, lettered in basketball, baseball, and track. The guy was a star. <laughs> I felt called into ministry at age 16 and applied to several Christian universities. Interesting. So he wanted to even be a pastor. Up to this point, everything sounds fine. It almost sounds boring. But you see, there was this problem. I had to be the best in everything I did because deep down inside, it never felt good enough for my parents, my teammates, my girlfriends, 
or anyone. He's actually not a whole lot different from our sister. Michelle gave this story today. Although externally, he's, he probably seems very differently, but inside, basically the same. <laughs> so if I wasn't good enough for them, how could I ever be good enough to serve God? I must have missed the Sunday sermon on Jesus' unconditioned love and unearnable grace. I was a walking and talking paradox, a combination of the lowest possible self-esteem and the world's largest ego. By the way, that often goes together. It's really weird. High ego, which we use to cover low self-esteem. It's really common in our city. It's very common. Believe me, that's not a very comfortable feeling inside. The best way that I can describe the feeling is a burning emptiness, a hole right in the gut. That's how he describes it. I went to the University of Missouri. When I packed for my freshman year, I took my non-existent self-esteem with me. I joined a fraternity and soon discovered the solution or what I thought was the solution for all of my life's hurts. Alcohol. It worked. For the first time in my life, I felt like I belonged. You know how he felt like he belonged? Because he basically got smashed <laughs> every week, weekend. That burning, that emptiness inside went away at least for a little while. I was majoring in business administration with a minor in partying. I met my wife, Cheryl, at a fraternity sorority football game. I was president of my fraternity, and Cheryl was president of her sorority. Cheryl and I were married in my senior year. Little did Cheryl know what the next 19 years would have in store for her. So he goes on. We didn't want to wait because the Vietnam War was in full swing, so, so um, we knew that after college I'd be called into the service. After graduation, I joined the Air Force, chosen to be a pilot. I attended officer's training school, and in 90 days, I learned to act like an officer and, and drink like a gentleman. I continued to abuse alcohol and viewed, viewed it as a cure for my pain. It certainly wasn't a sin. I quickly found the proper use for 100% oxygen. You know what? He, you guys know that you can drink. You can take in 100% oxygen when you're a pilot. Apparently, it helps you get over hangovers. That's what he liked about it. Um, I was selected as my squadron, uh, squadron social officer. Perfect. A job that required a lot of hours planning functions at the officer's club's bar. The war ended. I was assigned to a reserve unit. After the service, I joined Scott Paper Company, got my MBA degree at night school, and God gave us our first child, a daughter, Laura. Same name as my daughter. After two years, we were blessed with our son, John Jr. I was promoted eight times in the first 11 years of my business career. Does this guy sound like a loser? <laughs> he sounds like straight out of Silicon Valley, doesn't it? Eight times in 11 years? Are you kidding? I was the vice president of sales and marketing for two very large consumer food manufacturers. I had reached all my life's career and financial objectives and goals by the time I was 30. I kept replaying the words of a song in my mind. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? With all the business success came several relocations. After attending church um, attending church became less and less important to me as, a, as my drinking increased. I knew that if I died, I, I guess I was saved. 
However, I was beginning to be uncomfortable with my lifestyle, business practices, and priorities. To the outside world, everything with our life seemed normal. But in my heart, I knew something was very, very wrong. I was a leader in my church's youth ministry. The guy served the church, right? I thought it was normal to leave work early, stop by a bar before the Wednesday night meeting so that I could relate better to the kids. Didn't everybody think that? I was my son's little league coach for five years. I thought it was normal to stop by the pizza joint with my assistant coach for a few pitchers of beer after every little league game. (laughs) Didn't everybody think this? Slowly, I became more and more uncomfortable leading this lifestyle and had to face a major decision. You know, conviction is really uncomfortable. I had a choice. Do it my way. Continue drinking and living by the world's standards or surrender and repent and do it God's way. I wish I could tell you here that I saw the light and did it God's way. Truth is, I chose my way. I was known as a functioning alcoholic. I knew I had a problem, but I never lost a job or never got arrested for drunk driving. Up to this point, my secret was still safe. Cheryl was in denial, or at least I thought so. My wife just couldn't label me as an alcoholic until she noticed my new breakfast drink, beer. If, if you drink beer for breakfast, you have serious problems, okay? So if there's anybody here who drank beer for breakfast or even think about it, you should get checked into Celebrate Recovery tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I know it sounds like it sounds funny, but it's not funny, right? My wife... Um, One evening over the minor issue of my refusing to go for pie with some friends, in her anger, she asked me to go to counseling with her or just leave. Much to her surprise, I left. And our separation began. The only things my hurts, hang-ups, and habits, that's what they call it at Celebrate Recovery, hurts, hang-ups, and habits, cost me were my close relationships with the Lord and my family. You see, what I considered the solution for my life's problem, alcohol, became the problem of my life. And finally, my drinking cost me all purpose and reason for living. I was dying. Physically, emotionally, mentally, and most importantly, spiritually. So you know what he did? He finally got checked into Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. So now I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Alcoholics Anonymous makes, makes you go through 12 steps. Step number nine is a doozy. You know what step number nine is? You have to go and ask for forgiveness of all the people you hurt. Well, so he did it. So um, I was raised, okay, so then he said this. Um, I had quite a long list of names on my amends list. They ranged former employers, former employees, friends and neighbors, and finally his wife. On February 14, 1991, I left a note on her table asking her to meet me for lunch on Valentine's Day. (laughs) So your separate husband is asking you for lunch on Valentine's Day. Great day, all right? (laughs) She thought it was a little strange to be meeting her separated husband on Valentine's Day. During that lunch, I told her that I had been attending Alcoholics Anonymous, that I went to meetings several times a week and had a sponsor. I told her that a sponsor is a person who keeps you accountable. I told her that AA was founded on the principles of the 12 steps I need to share the ninth step with her. 
I simply told her that I was truly sorry for the pain I caused her in her life, that I still loved her, and if there was anything I could do, anything, please ask. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. (laughs) Cheryl and the kids had begun attending a church that met in a high school gym. This is Saddleback Church, pastored by a guy who's a little bit famous, Rick Warren, okay? But this is before he was famous. A church called Saddleback. One Saturday night, I was visiting the kids, and they asked me to go to church with them on Sunday morning. Much to their surprise, I said yes. That Sunday morning, I heard the music and Pastor Rick's message, and I knew I was home. Cheryl and I began in earnest to work on our issues that had torn our relationships apart. And five months later, God opened our hearts and renewed our marriage vows. You guys get that? A marriage that was dying was resurrected. Now, I won't won't read the rest. Here's what he does. So he's a clay. On the inside, he has Christ now. He was trying to get rid of Christ with alcohol because he's afflicted with a pain that he he isn't worth anything. Then he remembered, then he basically destroyed his life with alcohol. And then he realized, I'm almost dead. Then he did which whatever he had to do, which is apologize to his wife, and then he went back to church, and then he met Jesus again. And then this is a really incredible thing that he found out. He's like, I'm going to AA, and there's all these hurting people. They do not want to hear about Jesus. And then he goes to church. I don't meet too many alcoholics here, and they don't seem to want to be. They're afraid to hear about my inward pain and my addiction. And so then he wrote a letter to the pastor It's a famous letter, 13 pages, (laughs) single-spaced. Rick Warren got this letter, said, it's a large size. He was like, who is this guy? Called John Baker into his office, and and John Baker spilled out, you know what? AA was started by a pastor to give broken alcoholics and addicted, dying people Jesus and new life and freedom. We need to have this again. Rick Warren listened to this guy, just go on and on and on about this and said, fantastic, you're perfect. (laughs) He started, he's like, no way, I can't do this, I can't do this. You know, today, Celebrate Recovery is an international movement. 27,000 people have gone through Celebrate Recovery. A few years ago, I went to, I go, you know, as a pastor, I go to various different conferences the best conference I've ever been to was Celebrate Recovery. I cried and cried and cried at this conference. Women like our sister Michelle stood up, except even worse, they were like raped and abused, hated themselves, drug addicts, and then they went through Celebrate Recovery, and then they stood up there and said, I was dying, Jesus came in and took my dying and gave me life. And basically, you're sitting in a room of 4,000 people, and they're all bawling. Because John Baker, he believed that he was clay, but he had a treasure. And he had to love like the one who loved him. Would you think differently about your afflictions? The biggest fact in your life, the biggest fact in your life, Michelle, and all the other Michelles, is Jesus loves you. His dying will take away your dying. 
His life will give you new life. You live in that life and love people with the death and life of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for Michelle. Thank you for John. Thank you for the incredible people who are dying. We were dying, Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming to get us. Thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for real love, substitutionary sacrifice for eternal life. In Jesus' name.